Leadership is constantly shifting and changing. Over the past 18 months, that's never been more true. Across this episode, we dive into the role of leadership and the value of feminine qualities and elevating women into leadership positions. Women Rising founder and CEO, Megan Dala Kamina, is a best-selling author, women's mentor, founder and speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on women's leadership, well-being and empowerment. She's a global advocate for women. You'll hear her passion in this conversation. She's absolutely dedicated to helping women step into their power. She's also a thought leader in this space. She's appeared on NBC, CNN, CBS News and hundreds of media outlets, including Forbes, Fortune, Fast Company and Thrive Global. She's also the best-selling author of three books, including her latest bestseller, Simple, Soulful, Sacred, a woman's guide to clarity, comfort and coming home to herself. After leaving her 18-year corporate career across a decade, almost a decade ago, in response to both women and organisations seeking her out to teach, coach and lead positive change for women, Megan has created her own successful strategy coaching and speaking business. Megan runs a women's leadership development program for some of the world's most innovative companies and works with female entrepreneurs and business owners to create thriving business. Soak up the wisdom and the insight from this lifelong learner, Megan Dalla Kamina. Megan, it is such a delight to be carving out this time and connecting with you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for our conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, look, I'm excited as well. It's always a uh, it's always a good sign when you have a guest that says to you, we can go wherever you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm interested to, to tune into where we go at the moment. And a big part of your work, both in the past, but certainly where your heart is at the moment, is supporting women through leadership and women through empowerment. I'm really interested in uh, I guess going back to where the seed of that that direction came from, what is it about this field and this piece of work that I guess drew you to it, or how did you kind of go? This this is where I can can leave a mark. That's such a great question. I actually don't know if anyone's asked me that question before. Like where the where the seed was. So so let's just unpack that I guess um so by way of background I I worked for 18 years in corporate America but before that I grew up as a creative so I was a dancer singer actress writer until I was 22 23 that was my life and that was always going to be where I was going to end up I was going to be in LA you know doing the thing marrying Charlie Sheen you know um making movies and Thank goodness I was saved. Um, yeah, aren't you glad you didn't do that? <laughs> so glad. Um, but then, you know, various things happened and I ended up in um, corporate America with GE when I was in my sort of mid-20s and right through until eight years ago when I left. And gender was never a thing for me, you know. I went to a high school that was very small, less than 200 students And in my year, we were the first year that were in the school, there were 22 boys and five girls. And that took me through my whole high school. Um, And I was only really reflecting on that this past week because, you know, I went from that environment and then eventually ended up in corporate America in technology and professional services companies, you know, 70 to 80% men, you know, the rest women. I was always one of the only women in the room. I was very young, a very young manager, and then rose up quite quite quickly as a as a young woman here and in Asia, of all places, you know, with um, you know, with all of the cultural implications of that. Um, so gender was never on my radar until really I hit IBM, um, and I ended up at IBM through acquisition of the consulting business uh, from Price Coopers, and a couple of years into IBM. Because diversity is such a big part of 
the DNA of, of that company, I started to sort of have my eyes opened and started to look at gender diversity. I got on the gender diversity committee. And then that sort of last, you know, 10 years of my career, it's like my whole world opened. And even though I had always had this leaning and interest in um, leadership, business, through my master's degrees and, and other things, it, it was never about women. So from that period, it was literally like a light bulb had gone off for me. And once it was, you know, when it's like when, when you see something, you can't unsee it, the floodgates just opened. And a lot of things were happening in my personal life as well that sort of fused with that. I became a, a single parent when my son was 18 months old. I had a very bad work-related burnout where I literally gave up my job as, as head of marketing at IBM, came back in a different, a different, you know, GM role and had to change my life. So all of these things kind of fused together in that same decade and the more I got into the women's work and looking at women's leadership, looking at diversity, looking at and starting to understand patriarchy and masculine male-dominated structures, yeah, it was like one of those, I always talk about following the breadcrumbs to find your purpose and it was just one after the other, after the other, after the other that, yeah, led to the first book and then the coaching and, and everything that came from there. So it's almost like once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And yeah. there probably was this, you know, backlog of, uh-huh, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Insights. I want to, I'll go down that path in a moment, but I'd love to go back to uh, a high school of 200. Whereabouts did you, where did you grow up? Where did those kind of formative years um, happen for you? So that was in um, in the sort of outskirts of Sydney. Um, I went to a school called North Home Grammar, which was in Arcadia. And back then, like this is the 80s, like in the bush, not not the bush bush, like we're not the country, but, you know, under like where there was all farms sort of around us and, you know, bigger properties and we'd get on the bus for 45 minutes and, yeah, go, it was like punishment, right? Go out to this school, but it was incredible. It was an incredible uh, experience. I didn't think so, I didn't think it at the time because I kept trying to get expelled so I could go to drama school. I got suspended twice in two weeks in year ten. I was like, please just kick me out so I can go. I wanted to go to the ensemble theatre in Sydney and study, but I was too young. So yeah, yeah. And was drama, like obviously, and I love this kind of duality of even what you've described of this creative, uh, it wasn't just drama. You mentioned singing, <laughs> you mentioned writing, all of that. So this creative uh, kind of soul that was obviously there, and, you know, throughout schooling mixed with this kind of later corporate experience. Uh, but that creative drawing, whether it was, you know, drama, you know, dancing, singing, um, where did, where did that start to, where was that a niche? Was that really early on for you? Yeah. So I started, uh, was in my first dance class at three, you know, I was one of those little, those little tutu pink tighted pet people and then got very serious in my teenage years. So I was, you know, like I would be in dance class nearly every afternoon after school, all day Saturday, a Stedford's competitions um, for dance and also for um, for drama, for speech. Uh, I, I, refer, I, I think about it now as like poetry slam for teenagers. You know, that was what I did uh, as well as, you know, doing Shakespeare on stage and, and all other things. So it was, and writing, lots and lots of, you can imagine, you know, the tortured teenage soul writing songs and and all the things so it was it was my life you know I was I didn't do much else I hung out with all my friends were guys and they were musicians and we'd sing in bands and all my dancing friends yeah it was I never thought my life would be anything other than than that that I would literally you know I finished high school and I went to performing arts college like that's how serious I was and it was like when am I going to LA it was the only question you know, on, on my mind, um, for a whole lot of reasons that didn't happen, but that was the part. Was there, um, was that the, the reasons why that path didn't happen? Were they cumulative? Was there kind of moments or these kind of realizations? What, uh, what started to open up more the corporate side of, of where you headed? 
Yeah, so it was life, really, and I believe, you know, I'm I'm very much about watch the, watch the signs. Uh, and even though I maybe didn't have that language then, it, you know, life life intervened to change my path a number of times. I went to performing arts college and came out of performing arts college as so many people do. And I was like, now what? Like, okay, I've done that. Where's my big part? Where's the, where's the thing? And found myself uh, still dancing full time. I was really scratching around, you know, is, is, is sort of the analogy for, you know, what's next. I was waitressing. I was doing all sorts of things. I went and did an audio engineering diploma and worked as a music producer. I was just trying to find my place. And then when I was, um, just before I was 21, I got chronic fatigue syndrome. And this is way before they knew what chronic fatigue was. And I was in bed for six months. Like I was completely bedridden. I was very, very sick. They didn't know what was wrong with me until about five months in. And they said, there's this thing called chronic fatigue. And um, we think that's why you're so ill. And then coming out of that, you know, I worked part-time. I was working in music publishing. And again, just sort of scratching around looking for what's the thing. And by the time I got to sort of 23, met my ex-husband and was going to go to NIDA, so the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and I was talking to the director there and I'd been to summer school and he's like, yep. And, again, this, you know, life intervention of I'm either going to go on this path or I'm going to go on this path. I'm going to go to NIDA. There was an opportunity to go to L.A. and work with a music producer or, you know, I'm going to get a job. And in the mix of all of that, I had a car accident. And that car accident didn't look very bad, but I hurt my back quite badly. And again, I was sort of doing rehab for six months, couldn't work, you know, all of those things. And coming out of that, that's when I had to make a choice. Am I going to go and pursue this acting music thing? I was 24. It's like, is it time that I need to grow up? We can have a whole conversation about people in their 20s thinking that they have to throw away their dreams and give up. And a job at GE came up as an administration assistant and that's where I ended up. And that really was the beginning of the next 20 years because I, once I got into that environment, I absolutely loved it. Like you couldn't have, you couldn't have told me anything more foreign to me when I was growing up than that I would end up in a, in a Navy suit. I still remember going for that interview and I had this Navy suit on with a little scarf. I looked like a flight attendant, little high heels and pantyhose. Like you could not have painted a picture for me that was more absurd than that. Yeah, once I got in it, I, I absolutely loved it. And that was, um, that was, that was the shift. It's uh, it's incredible how yeah these these twists and turns and uh, about the decisions, but also life, as you say, life life kind of happens. Um, yeah, and I think it's intriguing even that that comment around you know the dreams that we have in our twenties that we think at twenty four that's it, it's over, and I have to follow the path. And whether that's you know some of those seeds of uh, careers advisors in high school where you've just got to choose the one, and um, I'm yeah. hopeful that that has changed now, but. Certainly, uh, certainly when I went, went through high school, it was a sense of you need to choose one direction and that'll yes. be, that'll be it for life. So I love that sense that actually there's, there's multiple ones, but, uh, yeah, interesting that life kind of happens. I mean, and, and describing some of those pretty major six months is a long time for both of those, uh, circumstances through chronic fatigue. And, and it was probably at a time where it was very unknown, possibly kind of stigmatized or not truly understood about what um, what that experience was like, let alone then having that car accident and, and periods of time out mm. as well. Leaping forward into the work that you do now, working alongside women and, and particularly around uh, empowerment and leadership. And in some ways, it's probably a combination of both that creative, uh, creative bent and really understanding the groundedness inside corporate world uh, and work and, and the reality of, of what some of those experiences 
are like for women. One of the things I often hear in talking and working with female leaders or those that are aspiring, aspiring into leadership roles is that just always this statement that I need to have more confidence. I wish I had more confidence. I'd love to unpack what your experience has been, whether you've ever heard those kind of statements and what are the things that you might work alongside or support women around when they go, well, I just feel like I haven't got enough confidence. Where, you know, can you point me in the direction of the shop where I can go and find <laughs> or buy the confidence that I need? Oh gosh, yes. So, I mean, confidence is one of the core fundamental pieces of the work that I teach and and the work that I do, whether it's through my programs, speaking engagements, through coaching, one-on-one women, you know, entrepreneurs, female executives, women coming up, or even teenagers who are always in my house, right? Well, pre-COVID were always in my house. So this is, it is absolutely core and fundamental. So many women in their careers have been told you just need to be more confident, but never, never is that followed with, this is what I mean when I say that, and here's the pathway to build it. Um, Through all of the research and work that I've done and written in my books, one of the most helpful things is the definition of confidence is the ability to turn our thoughts into action which comes from the research, right? Confidence is the ability to turn our thoughts into action. And when I teach that and share that with women, it's like all of these light bulbs go off, right? We have a thought, you know, I want to put myself forward for that position or I want to start the side hustle or the business or I want to ask that person out on a date, whatever it is. And then we have the action that we want to take and we get stuck. And the thing that is in the middle of those two things are our stories and our beliefs. Yeah, so all of the things that have happened in the past, all of the things that we're projecting onto the future and all of the cognitive dissonance, yeah, and distortions that happen inside that process. So, like, that's the work, I believe, for us. And there's a lot of deeper, more soulful work as well. But on a cognitive level, understanding that when you are feeling less than confident, you are in that confidence gap between the thought you're having as to what you want to do, the action that you want to take and the stories that you're telling yourself about why that can't happen. And when we can work through a process of moving through that to get from the thought to the action, everything changes. You know, I found that in my own life and my career. I wish someone had told me that in my 20s or even my 30s because I didn't discover it until my 40s. And I find that for the women that I, you know, work with or who, you know, read the books or or do the programs, that as much as anything else that we do is the transformation point, yeah, when we can learn to catch the story, challenge the story and unpack it and then reframe it into action, that's when we really start to build confidence And I call it radical confidence, you know, like that's in my frameworks and journeys with Women Rising. It's that radical confidence of no matter who's in front of me, what situation I'm in, who my boss is, who my client is, what's happening in my personal life, I have that sense of being unshakable and unstoppable. And even when I get into a situation where I get stuck, I have the tools and the knowledge and the understanding to be able to move through that process to get to the action that I want to take. So, yeah, I think this is one of the big misunderstood pieces that keeps us from being in our power. Yeah, it's the, the work that's both easy and hard in what you've described. It's, it's as you say, taking your thought and putting it into action. But what's all the barriers along the way? I think one of the things as you were talking, you know, if someone you know, listening has had a manager or a boss or someone in their place of work saying you need to be more confident. What can be said between the lines is you need to be a different person. You need to not be you. And so then this sense of, well, who do I need to be? What kind of armor do I need to put on? What kind of persona do I need to embody? Someone else looks like they've got confidence, but it's not my kind of style. So it doesn't, it's almost like the jacket that doesn't fit. It's too short. It's it's itchy. uh, And you want to take it off. Whereas what you're talking about is a methodology to step through this sense of it being a transformational what are what are the aha moments that you hear what why is that so 
such a radical process or a thing to comprehend and understand. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is um, just listening to what you were saying because, again, it's such a core piece of my beliefs and and, and the work and what I want women to understand is the the first thing is that you, you get to be yourself. Number one through number 100, full stop period, you get to be yourself, right? And so many of us have been raised as women with you need to fit into this model of success, this definition of leadership, this definition of the ideal worker. And if you don't fit that, you don't belong here, right? You will not be successful here. So yes, armor up and fit in. And this is why we still see so many women having so many challenges in organisations, doesn't matter whether that's government, a corporate structure, a not-for-profit. Um, it's why so many women are still underfunded in terms of venture capital when they're entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's, this is the patriarchal society that we still live in. So that understanding of, like, what do you mean I just get to be myself and that, and that I'm safe and that I'm okay? is a radical thought. It's a radical belief and it is, it's a game changer. Um, and then to give women the tools, well, how do I actually start to unlearn? Yeah. Unlearn all the things that we've been taught as women for how to armor up and fit in and to be masculine, whatever that looks like for you, um, is, is a process that, that like, that's part of the work that we get to do as women if we, if, we, if we choose to. And once you have that understanding that, okay, I'm not trying to build confidence and bravado and be like the guys and act like that, yeah, like that model of a leader looks like this, ideal worker looks like this, um, I'm always on, I don't show any vulnerability, I wear my power suit, yeah, all of, all of the, put my pantyhose on, you know, with my six-inch heels so that I have that power position, all of these things, then we can start to move through those processes. We can start to de-armor. I mean, this is one of the reasons I feel that Brene Brown's work has been so revolutionary for the world is this sense that take your armor off show your vulnerability, step out of your shame. Um, and for women, when we're looking at authenticity, authentic leadership, being your most confident self, you know, like all of these things fuse together, you know, in, in, with, with the tools that we have now to, to sort of move through that. So when you say what are the ahas, these are the ahas, you know. Oh, I can just show up authentically and I can take off my armour I can, I talk a lot about feminine traits, feminine and masculine, non-gendered and how they show up for us as women. I also do that work with men and male leaders, but that's a revelation as well. That all, you know, and, and, and the revelation that what people actually want from leaders today is the feminine traits are the ascendant traits, not the masculine traits. That's another layer of aha. Because that's what for many of us comes naturally, but we've buried it because it's had no place. You know, it's had no place in the boardroom. It's had no place in, in the workplace. And then I once actually, women... Um, sorry, sorry to interrupt, okay. but I actually have this belief that I think some of those feminine traits are going to save and rescue workplaces. And what I mean by that is so many culture surveys or engagement surveys have things like... I feel like we're in isolation. We're not collaborating enough. There's not enough trust. No one listens to me. I don't feel valued. These things that the feminine traits, non-gendered, actually amplify, inclusive, ask questions, provide safe safe environments, sit and listen, uh, are the very things that engagement surveys are riddled with hope for. (laughs) Yeah. And We'll we'll save and change workplaces, we'll save and change the world, right? Like, and for, for all genders to embody this balance of feminine and masculine, because they are non gendered, we all have them, no matter how you identify, we all have, you know, these inherent feminine and masculine traits. 
And like the shift I see when I'm talking to male leaders and a group of male leaders around this, the first, I remember so clearly the first time I ever talked about this in a, I was in a bank, one of the big four banks with the executive leadership team. Uh, we would have been 25 men, two women in the room. And I just put up a slide that said the world would be a better place if men thought more like women. And I didn't, it's from research, but I didn't attribute the research. And I just put up that, that uh, line and just waited <laughs> to see the response. I thought they were going to throw me out of the room. And of course, I quickly moved through and started talking about the research around how leadership is changing for masculine traits. And I could literally see the shoulders of the men start to come down. You know, like we, we think that it's going to be a very defensive conversation when we start talking about this. But in my experience, more often than not, it's a, like a tell me more conversation. What does this look like in practice? It's how does this impact people? How would I change? How do I bring in? Yeah, it's, it's that type of discussion. They're the discussions that will change the face of cultures in organisations and therefore that ripple effect, yeah, out to, out to society and the world. I believe that so strongly. I agree. I think there's so many and certainly plenty of, you know, male champions for change that, that I've connected with that are just craving to tell me, tell me what more we can do. Yeah. I feel like we've tried this and it's not working or we've opened this door and no, none of our women are walking through. What, what can we do? And so, yeah, I agree. There's, there's an opening to the conversation and a, a deep curiosity around what can we do mm. differently that also allows senior leaders of all genders to be able to go, right, well, how do I want to find, how do I want work to be and how do I want it to have an impact on my world, my family, um, yeah. and the way that I, I turn up. Yeah. Coming back to that sense around confidence, one of the things that can get in the way, and it probably falls in that stories and belief capacity, but I'm interested in what are some of the really practical strategies that you talk to women around, this concern about what if I fail? So yes, I might turn up and I can be my authentic self and um, I can move into action, but what if the action doesn't work? So one of it is the how do we deal with the thought of that? Mm. And the second part of that is how do we deal with the reality of it? So I get into action and it absolutely fails. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, well, that didn't work, Megan. So where do I go from here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the practical tools that you work through with women around that sense of failure? Yes. So look, I think the first thing that we all need to realize is that we are all, we're going to fail. Like it's a given, right? And it might be a really small failure, which we've all experienced. It might be a monumental failure, which I'm sure most of us have also experienced. I One of the things that I teach is, um, which so many of your listeners will be aware of, is Fixed and Growth Mindset from Professor Carol Dweck. And for anyone who, who's not familiar, you know, Fixed Mindset is when we are in a get me to the outcome as quickly with as little pain and with as little risk as possible because if I fail, it's going to be fatal, yeah? And that sense of loss baked in to even the thought of failure, yeah? Any of um, A-type control freaks listening will understand what that feels like. I used to be one, so I um, I see you. <laughs> and that's very much fixed, fixed mindset, right? Whereas growth mindset is the expansive, abundant, mindset of as long as I'm showing up, as long as I am learning then and growing, I'm going to be successful. So that's one of the core concepts that, you know, I share with, with my clients, with women in my programs, because I find it's very simple. It's very helpful. And the question that, that I believe takes you into growth mindset quicker than anything else is what can I learn here? What can I learn here? And when you can ask that, when you're sitting in a story of um, a fear story of I'm going to fail, which will often either lead you to take a very safe action, 
or it might put you in the category that we hear so many women talking about, very, very successful, you know, powerful women like Christine Lagarde's talked about it a lot, um, Angela Merkel's talked about it a lot, where it's just I'm going to prepare within an inch of my life so that there is absolutely no risk, yeah, of me going into a meeting and someone asking me a question and I don't know the answer as one example, which can feel like a, a big failure for, for a lot of people. You know, what is the what is the story that you're in here and when we can unpack those stories to help us move through to, to the action on the other side and when we can have that question, what can I learn here versus I'm going to fail so I'm going to stay in my box, that can really help. Um, I, I will often say to women, start small and lower your risk. So if you are, if you know that you're really in a fixed mindset and that that's a real challenge for you because you're so scared of failure, then pick something. And I was actually talking about this with a, with a coaching group last week, pick something that's really small and feels like low risk. And that could be, I'm really scared of speaking up in that meeting next week because I don't like to speak up. I'm intimidated by the people who are going to be on that Zoom session because no one's in a room. So I'm going to prepare myself to speak, whether that's asking a question, whether that's, you know, sharing some whatever, and that that's a relatively low risk situation so that you can start to build that muscle of moving from that fixed mindset to that growth mindset, moving from that death fear of failure through to taking an action that, yeah, if you fail, if it doesn't go well, so what? Like it's okay. You know, you may feel pain for five minutes. You're not going to derail your career through that action. And then to build and build and build that skill over time of managing your stories what's the action? You know, how do you unpack that so that you can do the thing? And that you will over time, um, and the just really the three-step process is catch the story, ask is that true, so that you're you know breaking that cognitive pattern, that rumination pattern, getting to what is really true here, and then reframing into action. Like that's the very simple three-part process. The more we do that, we build that muscle, we can move through it quite quickly and our confidence builds as a result of that. And so does our fear of failure because as we see the failures, we realise that like we're not going to die. You know, if we say the wrong thing or even if it's even if it's a big thing, you know, I remember when I was director of marketing at IBM, we were doing this massive, massive conference and we were trying to do something really sexy with the technology. It didn't work. And I'm standing up on the stage giving a keynote. I'd only been in the role for two months, massive keynote, hundreds and hundreds of people, all of my general management peers, and the tech didn't work. It was an absolute disaster. And I thought, that's it. Like, I, this is the end. I'm going to get fired, you know, or like all of the things that could have happened from that. But I still, I was still there. I still had a job. I moved on. I lost some face. I was embarrassed, <laughs> you know, so was my team. But the world didn't end because of that failure. And the more that we can learn that failure is okay, again, the more we can move through and build those muscles. That really just kind of practical sense. It's almost like you can schedule it in and give it a go. And sometimes the the uh, the realisation is that actually other people don't care as much as what we think they do. No, they do. <laughs> and no and one's thinking about like, you, right? No one's thinking about you. You know, that situation and that presentation. They're worried about their own. <laughs> they are. They're thinking about themselves. You know, I was in a shame bubble from that situation for weeks and weeks and weeks. Do you think that any single person even a general manager who didn't like me very much, do you think that they gave it two seconds of thought a minute after it happened? No, they didn't. No, so I'm in my shame bubble. Everyone else has moved on, right? No one cares as much as, like no one's even paying attention really, let's be honest. 
we're also self-absorbed and consumed with ourselves. <laughs> so, like, get the failure, do it, fail, get it out of the way, move on to the next thing. Yeah, but, but do 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 lower the risk. Like, we don't want to be we don't want to be cavalier here. Pick something that you do feel is low risk and build from there. Don't. Oh, Megan said to go and you know let's fail, and you pick the critical client deal that you're working on. Don't please don't do that. You know, rein it in. But build, yeah, build the skills. Yeah. Yeah. Have it. <laughs> <laughs> start small, start small. Um, a lot of this is that that managing the stories and the inside work. One of the key roles of leadership is about influence. And for women, it can be shifting from being nice to yeah. being influential and that impact that you can have on others that becomes really critical in the way that uh, we are seen as leaders mm-hmm. and and the work that we can do. A big part of, I believe, and certainly what I've seen, I'm wondering if you have as well, the shift for women stepping into leadership roles is realising that they don't need to do it all, which is the nice, but actually leaders are influential and encourage and provide the space for others to do that. So I've got a, whether you've got a couple of quick tips or strategies on how to build influence and I guess that dichotomy between being influential versus being nice. Oh, okay. So we can talk about this for five hours. We won't. I'll be quick. Uh, I, the first thing here is that as women, we have to let go of the good girl syndrome. Uh, and the, I write about this in Simple Soulful Sacred, this, this way that we have been socialised to be good to be nice, to be quiet, yeah? And, of course, this is not all of us, but society in general, right? So once we can recognise that and start to detach and unlearn, as we talked about at the outset, that is really helpful for this, for this process. The more that we can show up and build our authenticity and our presence and that sense of personal power and grounded in who we are, what we believe, what our values are, what our unique mix of traits, you know, to bring in some of those things that we've spoken about, then the more confidence and power that we have um, as women and the less that we are trying to people please, which takes us away from our ability to hold our power and to have influence in our careers and in our leadership journey. And we don't need to be in a leadership role to do that. You know, like I want to see, we often see young women doing this much better than women in their thirties and forties because something happens to us as we go into the workplace where we learn and learn and learn and see and see things demonstrated and then on comes the armour, on comes all of those things, people-pleasing, et cetera. So bringing it back to how are you building authenticity, how are you unhooking from the good girl syndrome, where are you recognising when you're actually doing those things, you know, when you're in a, in a leadership role or any, any role that you're in, you could be in your own business and doing this with your clients and being nice and people-pleasing with your clients, not setting boundaries. Yeah, I see this with entrepreneurs all the time. Mm-hmm. Where are you catching the stories and being aware that this is how you're behaving and where is it not serving you? And then if you unhooked from your story, what is the action you would actually take? Yeah, so if you can catch that story with that self-awareness, challenge the story by asking, is that true? And then look at if I was being authentic and true to myself and true to the situation, if it wasn't about me but it was about the client or the business, how would I best serve in this situation? Which is also another great question to ask that can take us out of it's all about me And so, therefore, I need to be liked, I need to people please, yeah, I need to stay protected versus who am I being of service to in this situation and is my action, is my behaviour serving that situation or not? Mm, I love that. Who am I being of service to? Yeah. Back to that sense, well, what am I... And what's the, the key purpose or the influence that I'm yeah. actually here to have? Yes. And you can almost kind of get out of our own way. So catching that story. Yeah. 
is a really critical step. I get it's a big question and one that we could definitely talk yeah. about for you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. All weeks the way through. Yeah. Unpack the patriarchy that sits behind all exactly. of it. Exactly. Exactly. Like that's a very deep um, one of the chapters in Simple, Softful, Sacred towards the end is womanhood. There's a womanhood chapter and a sovereignty chapter. Um, and I've had a lot of women uh, write to me and say, oh, I, like, raced through the book. I went through all the chapters on clarity and well-being and confidence and livelihood and, like, comfort, give me more, give me more. And then they get to womanhood and sovereignty and they stop because they're just not ready. Like they're not ready to start really going into shit. We are in this patriarchal society and I'm like, I've never looked at it. I don't understand the inner patriarchy. I don't understand the outer patriarchy. And how do I even unpack that? So yeah, it's a, that's a big conversation, but it's important that we bring our awareness to it. Yeah. And, and I think that realization that we carry the bias as well, it's not just out there. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is part of our kind of mental models, what we've been, yeah. yeah, what we've seen, what we've brought up with. And I cannot wait for our brains to change because we have so many women in senior leaders, leadership roles that we no longer have those stereotypes because our brain has gone, oh, no, we don't need that anymore because that's not the reality. Yeah, like I think it's it's that and it's also the, like we it's what we see. And it's what's in our cognitive track, but it's also what's in our memory. It's also what we know in our bones to be true through what has happened ancestrally for the last hundreds of years, right? And we never talk about that. We talk about we need, you know, three women on a board of 10 and then we'll reach a tipping point and then this will happen and this will happen. We're not having still to this day, or I am in my clients, but generally we're not having these deeper conversations. And until until we do, we're not going to see the shifts. Until we're having real conversations around feminine, feminine masculine traits, how leadership needs to shift, how we build belonging and real inclusiveness in organisations, why women keep leaving. And it's not a lot of the times because they can't work part-time, right? Like we've got to get real about what's actually happening so that we can create real change because we're like we're nowhere near close to, to that happening. And it requires the courage to step into those hard um, conversations yeah. to actually look back and 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 realize that the system isn't built that way. Your book, Simple, Soulful, Sacred, is a is a beautiful book and one that we'll definitely put reference to for people to connect in around some of those practical tips, the research that sits behind it, and some of the things that they that people can step into. I want to bring this conversation to this year. It's not quite the year that we had planned for the start of a decade. <laughs> is the understatement uh, of this interview. Um, one of the, the conversations I'm having quite a lot with organisations and leaders is around, it's actually around grief and loss. So this not being the year that we had planned, everything from the family holiday that we had booked that we can no longer do to the job that I'm not even sure that I have anymore or that I have actually lost or the income that's not reliable, the uncertainty, let alone the impact on, you know, isolation and withdrawal and those sorts of things. I'm interested in, I'm going to ask you this question rather than the people that you are working alongside. How are you navigating and what might be some of the practical things that that you're doing to kind of navigate what might be just the sense of loss of the year that you had hoped for? Mm, it's such a important topic. Um, so for me personally, the year, look, in some ways it looks similar. In other ways it looks nothing like. And in terms of the things that look similar, like I live a very simple life, you know, I work in my, this is my office, in my home, and I live a simple life. You know, I have all of my practices and my yoga and my meditation and, you know, all of the things that I do. I spend a lot of time in my suburb and I have a, you know, a small circle. So in, in that sense, some things haven't changed. In other sense, you know, I was meant to have eight overseas trips this year for work. You know, I was meant to be in China and Korea and Kuwait and the US. Like, I, you know, and so in, in that sense, in you know, out there, 
a lot has changed and sort of navigating this through with my son and how his world changed. It's, I, I, I think for me and also for what I see, letting go, just letting go. And if you haven't already, if we haven't already, just to let go of the the stories around what this year was meant to be like, what this year was meant to feel like, what the things were that we were meant to be doing. I was meant to be going to India next week, which on a, you know, sort of pilgrimage, you know, heartbroken, but hey, you know, hopefully next year, right? Just letting those things go. And I've spent a lot of time looking for like, where's the light? Where's the light? Where's the light? Where are the moments of joy? Where's the hopefulness? Which I think is a huge thing for so many of us um, is having something to hope for, particularly for people who are in lockdown, you know, here in Australia or around the world. Where is that light? And, and what's, what's next? Like what's the next thing that I have to look forward to? I think is hugely significant. Wherever we can look for where are we being of service to others, we find light and hope in those situations, which we can do wherever we are. And and that, you know, you ask about me, that's kept me sort of moving forward um, as well. So I hope that answers the question. No, absolutely. I think I love that sense of having something on the horizon, particularly when the things that we had Mm, are not an option. And I think also one of the challenges that we face is the levers in the past to if things were to change, for example, if a trip to India didn't happen, then we might look to go to somewhere else. Like, yeah. we, you know, so those, those normal levers that we would pull to, to be able to adapt to change or to have something else are not there. Yeah. So many of them are uh, removed or taken away for this period of time. So I yeah. love that sense of coming back to, well, what, what is that thing on the horizon and finding hope and finding yeah. ways to be of service yeah, I just want to say, like, that could be a really small thing. That could be the 15 minutes you get to go for a walk tomorrow, that that is, that that's your beacon of hope, you know, or that you're going to have a Zoom chat with a friend because you feel so deeply isolated. And I know that that's very real for a lot of people right now, especially people who live on their own um, and who don't have that contact where is your next human connection coming from, even if it's remote? Yeah, or it could be going to the shop, even though you've got your mask on your face. How do you connect? Yeah, how do you how do you bring that in? So it can be really small things, but we have to have them, right? Because if we don't have even them, then it's it feels hopeless. Also, staying out of the darkness, staying out of the as much as you can out of like the media circus and the conspiracy theories. And yeah, I just always talk about how do you stay in the light, whatever that means for you. It doesn't mean don't get your news, but it means filter, be discerning about what you're tapping into. And then where's the light? Where's the joy? Where's the hopefulness? Um, where's the connection? Where's the positive emotions so that you can balance that out? Otherwise, like you do your head in, right? Otherwise. I think it's that opportunity. I always, um, it's that realization that we can cull, whether it's social media feeds, whether it's, you know, um, things that are hitting our inbox, those sorts of things is actually doing. And I usually like to do it once a year, but just that ruthless cull. Actually, how do I feel when I see that? Does that actually make me feel better or not? And being really mindful of consumption. What are you consuming and what impact is, is that having? What is the stuff that's exciting you about what's next? Um, like I'm very lit up about my work right now. So uh, Women Rising that's just come out and I'll have our public program in October. Uh, I'm doing work around that with women all over the world. So we're about to bring in hundreds of women in the Middle East that would never until six, 12 months ago had the opportunity to come in and do this work. My sense is from conversations I'm having, there'll be thousands and thousands and thousands of women in the Middle East coming into our Women Rising work in the next six months, which to me, like that's the ripples of change that's going to create is phenomenal. So that's really exciting. Um, There's another book that's coming that I'm working on. Hopefully we'll be out next year. And just creating spaces for women together 
you know, we've just created this Women Rising Facebook group, totally free, come in and we're going to have gathering points every month um, because, again, we're just, we just want the connection and the hope and the inspiration and the tools to, to be able to move forward. There's a lot in my sort of personal life around uh, learning that I'm also really excited about right now. I'm doing a program at NYU in the US, in New York, obviously virtually, uh, 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 which is called an inner MBA, which is, which is awesome. And doing my uh, sort of uh, master's level teacher training around the yoga and meditation that I practice and teach. So things like that. And it's always that sort of fusion for me of sort of the science, the science, the spirit and the experience and how that comes together. So there's usually something cognitive going on in terms of learning and there's usually something spiritual and holistic and that fusion. I'm very excited about summer. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I've ever felt such a longing for summer um, and that just that sense of freedom and hopefully to take some time off uh, and just hopefully we'll be hanging out together in, 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 you know, family, friends, and I'm ever hopeful. There's December on the horizon and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful for that, but I am smiling because I'm, I'm actually sitting here on the Gold Coast and in, in a t-shirt and shorts saying, yeah, I'm hopeful for summer too, (laughs) but it's Uh, pretty nice here in winter. (laughs) I will be, I am, um, very much looking forward to, I spent a lot of time in Byron Bay and I haven't been to Byron since, well, months, right? Months and months and months. And I'm usually up there every, at least every three months. So I'm going up for a couple of weeks in October to write. I uh, like can't come soon enough. So yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Look, I want to come full circle. And I've just so appreciated your time, Megan. I'm excited for what is coming up for you as well. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? That's a great question. Um, For me, a standout life is about a life that comes from standing in your power, you know, And, and, and for me it's about the clarity of what is it I'm trying to create, who am I trying to be, who am I here to serve and how do I live each day in alignment with those things and always from a place of love, always. So that to me is a, is a standout life because it doesn't really matter what happens out there as long as what happens in here is right and that that's connected to being of service. Yeah, that's a standout life for me. I'd sign up for that. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again, Megan. Thank you. It's a beautiful conversation. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.